on, or Friday rather, saw one of them and his parents, uh, he is Palestinian and his parents live in the West Bank. And uh, he said that they're safe, but it has been a rough week. And um, I believe uh, Muhammad and his brother are uh, Muslim and they need the Lord. And uh, over time, we've had opportunity to be a witness to them. Um, and, you know, in addition to those who would, would be uh, from a different religion, uh, as well as Jews who don't believe in Jesus Christ, there are certainly lots of needs uh, for Christ. And in a time when life is being taken, certainly the Lord uses times like this to bring people to consider eternity. And uh, that's something that we can pray for, that God would use uh, this circumstance both over there and here to accomplish his work. But uh, remember that the Lord uh, loves sinners and whatever side they may find themselves on. Of course, he always hates evil as well, but they need Christ. And so let's let's be in prayer um, for that situation. Acts chapter 8, we're coming to a passage in the first few verses of Acts chapter 8 that follows, uh, you could call him the first martyr in the church, Stephen, as he is put to death in the end of chapter 8. We've looked through his testimony, his witness for Christ, and Stephen was given great opportunity to testify to the very same people who had Christ crucified um, of their sin. He testified again of the risen righteous one, Christ, or standing, as he says in chapter 7, verse 56, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then, of course, they stoned him. And even as he is being stoned, he prays for his persecutors. He addresses the Lord first, but in verse 60, he prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we're introduced to Saul in verse 58, but it's also Saul in verse 1 of chapter 8. And again, Saul in verse 3, and if you've read through the book of Acts and, of course, know the story of the early church, this is a significant introduction of an individual who's going to be instrumental in God's plan. But here we find him on the opposite side. We find him as an enemy of God's people. We find him in verse 1 in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He fully believed that Stephen ought to die. And certainly in the life of God's people, going even into the Old Testament, there is bloodshed for those who follow God, who obey God, who certainly in the church follow Christ. We find blood being shed here, and this is the first of many, we would say, in the history of the church, even in the study of the New Testament. We can see others who are giving their life for the sake of Christ. Sometime in the fourth century, a church was called a church father, author named Tertullian. He was addressing the rulers of the Roman Empire. 
And among other things, he said, go zealously on, good presidents. You will stand higher with the people if you sacrifice the Christians at their wish. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is the proof that we are innocent. Therefore, God suffers that we thus suffer, but for very lately in condemning a woman to the leno rather than to the leo, you made a confession that a taint on our purity is considered among us something more terrible than any punishment or death. His reference to the leno was a slave owner of prostitutes, and the leo is the lion. So rather than sending a woman to be killed by lions, they sent a Christian woman to suffer under a slave owner of prostitutes. And he said, you made confession that a taint on our purity is considered among us something more terrible than any punishment or any death. It's a worse punishment to be impure. But then he said something that has become famous. He said, nor does your cruelty, however exquisite, avail you. It is rather a temptation to us. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And that's been spelled out a little more specifically with the statement, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You ever heard that? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Tertullian said the blood of Christians is seed. And how true that is. I think you could read church history and see that is true. You can read through this section of the book of Acts and see that it is true. When Stephen died, there was a great persecution that followed. We're getting a record of it briefly in the first few verses here. But we also find that this was a part of God working to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a shift, as we look at chapter 8, there's a shift here that takes place. And if we've been following through the book of Acts and seeing how the gospel, of course, has come to Jerusalem and it is expanding in Jerusalem, there are daily people being saved and the gospel's being preached and people are even coming in from towns outside to hear the gospel preached, to be healed. But remember what Jesus taught in Acts chapter 1, as he spoke to his disciples, he said, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We've heard of Judea because people from the cities around Jerusalem have come in. But Samaria is now mentioned in verse 1 of this chapter. And Samaria, again, is mentioned in verse 5, and the gospel, though we heard of Samaria in the gospels, we did see Jesus tell his disciples that he was not; they were not to go at a certain point in the way of the Samaritans. Although he made a specific mission to them, certainly saw the woman at the well come to Christ and others, that was not the focus of the disciples until now. So let's read these first few verses. Says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. 
Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, or literally bringing the good news of the word. The word is connected with our word, evangelize. They go forth evangelizing as a result of this persecution that has come to the church. And we're going to see how far it is spread or how far it does spread as we look at uh, later chapters in the book of Acts, because although Luke records some here, he also mentions later that the gospel went even further than just these places. And so while we would say the focus has been in Jerusalem and even the cities around are coming in, now through persecution, the gospel is going out just as Jesus said that it would. Little did they know that this would all happen through persecution. Jesus had told them to go and preach the gospel to every creature, and I am sure if they believed and obeyed their Lord, that was their desire. But there was so much going on at Jerusalem that they could hardly focus on other things. But now there's a new phase. There's a next phase. We're going to look at the immediate persecution following Stephen's death and also what you might say is a protest against the persecution or the martyrdom of Stephen. We're going to think about the primary leader as Saul in verse 3 is mentioned as a solo figure, although I don't believe he was alone. He certainly was leading the charge for persecution. And then in verse 4, the providential spread of the gospel. So let's look at this immediate persecution. Notice the link that Luke makes in verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And notice the way that he describes, he links this day, the, 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 the death of Stephen to the beginning of this persecution, and he mentions that it is a great persecution. It's no longer the leaders of the church. It's now specifically the church itself, and we're given some more detail in verse 3. Now, I say it's great in terms of the people, but what was the size of the church of Jerusalem at this point? If we were reading through the book of Acts, what would we see? We would see 120 in chapter 1. We would see 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. We would see another 5,000 men, not to, not to uh, think less or diminish the women, but there were 5,000 men. That's how the count is given after that lame man was healed. Some of those people may have left Jerusalem, but many of them certainly would have been there and stayed. And you're talking about a church that is in the thousands, thousands of believers. They're meeting at Solomon's porch, this large area where the apostles were preaching. I don't believe it's an overestimate to say there were thousands of followers of Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 1, again, on that day, a great persecution began. That certainly refers to the, uh, the efforts that Paul, uh, Saul was making, but also the number of people that were affected. Look, look at the rest of the verse. It says, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So this is great in terms of its magnitude. 
And what's the effect? This is a moving out and away from Jerusalem, where the center had been, where the apostles were. And they're going into cities within the regions of Judea and Samaria. I say cities within the regions. If you look down at verse 5, it says Philip went down to the city of Samaria. That's a city, but it's also a region. Judea is a region. It was the Roman name for Judah. This is the area where, of course, Jesus lived and ministered along with his disciples. This is the area uh, north and south of Jerusalem. Uh, as you estimate the, the space, you're talking about perhaps 70 miles or so from north to south and then from the Dead Sea over to the Mediterranean Sea. And there are all sorts of cities and villages, both around Jerusalem, but throughout that whole area. And that's just Judea. But if you move beyond Judea up into Samaria, where the city of Samaria was, not quite into Galilee, where the Sea of Galilee is, but where the city of Samaria was and the cities and villages of Samaria were. This is a spreading of these thousands of people throughout, scattering them throughout Israel. And remember, Jesus had gone. He'd reached the woman at the well. He'd gone to the cities and preached the gospel. There's a sense in which he did that initial gospel work, which now the disciples, as they're leaving Jerusalem, are going to proclaim that same message of Jesus Christ. And this is, of course, unexpected. Nobody's anticipating all of this happening. How did it begin? It began with some debates between Stephen and certain men in chapter 6. It says some men was from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, and it includes the regions that they're from. They rose up and argued with Stephen. And within a short amount of time, that argument developed into some false charges the false charges brought Stephen to the Sanhedrin, and now he's on trial for his life, and then suddenly he's executed, and then suddenly the persecution begins. And what did that look like? And we're told by the text here, in part, what it looked like as you look down at verse 3, but later, of course, we're thinking about the Apostle Paul. He talks about what he did when he persecuted the believers. He talks about how he did what he did. Verse 3, just to give you a picture of what's taking place, it says, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. In another place, as he gives his testimony, he says in Acts 22, he says, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. He's talking to the Lord. And he says, and when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the coats who were slaying him. So what is going on in Jerusalem that's described in more detail in verse 3 is there is house to house, synagogue to synagogue, persecution that's beginning, and it's just scattering the people all over the place unexpected throughout these regions. God sometimes uses unexpected means to accomplish his plan. We might have looked at Matthew 28 or Mark 16, Luke 24, 
John 20, Acts chapter 1, and said if the disciples would just have obeyed, they would have just gone forth out of Jerusalem. But the Lord had a purpose. He had a purpose, of course, in bringing these things to pass that he did in chapter 7. And now through persecution, he's sending his people out to places to preach the gospel. And this is the early church. And really, the gospel hasn't changed. Our Lord hasn't changed in terms of what we are to expect. I don't think we should expect any less than persecution if we continue to obey the Lord. We are blessed to live in a place where we don't see these kinds of things happening. But at the same time, you could say that God did something good here by scattering his people with the message of the gospel. You might ask the question, why aren't we suffering this kind of persecution? In church history, as you read through, whether it's John Fox's Book of Martyrs or just a history of the church, it really is a history of bloodshed. It's a history of persecution. It's a history of the kinds of things that you see in the Book of Acts, public arrest, inquisition, imprisonment, verbal threats, beatings. Of course, in history, you can see physical abuse and torture of Christians. And like we saw in chapter 7 and other places in Acts, martyrdom. Sometimes we look at something like this and we say, that's bad for them. I'm glad we don't have to deal with that. Why shouldn't we have to deal with that? Should we expect any less than what this church had to suffer. God's people have always suffered persecution. Yes, there have been times where persecution has not been taking place. But if you're preaching Christ and you're following him and you're living godly and you're living in a sinful world that hates Christ, what should we expect? Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't go out looking for it, but we should expect it if we're truly living godly and we truly are following Christ. Jesus said in John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. He's talking about the world. He's talking about the Jews who are about to crucify him. And so while we don't go out looking for it, we should expect it. If it's not coming, why is that? Is it that we're not living godly in Christ Jesus? Is it we're, that we're not preaching Christ? Here's a church that was filled with the Spirit and preaching Christ, and the leaders would have none of it. And especially Saul, as he's in hearty agreement and he's about to start a campaign himself against the name of Christ. Before we get to verse 3, I want you to notice a couple of things. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, accept the apostles. Do you notice that? 
except the apostles? They're scattered except the apostles? And you might say, well, what are the apostles doing? Why are they still there? I think it's a valid question to ask. If we read to the book of Acts up to this point, we understand the apostles themselves had been persecuted, indeed even beaten for the name of Christ. But remember Gamaliel and his policy? His policy of toleration, his policy of let's leave these men alone. And if this is of God, it's going to continue. You can't stop it. If it's of men, it's going to fail. That policy was still a part of what at least the Sanhedrin understood at a point in time. You might say that Stephen's execution was contrary to that. So there is Gamaliel's policy. There also is the courageous work of the apostles. They're, by God's grace and through his spirit, they were bold. And perhaps as they stayed there, not being persecuted themselves, they're thinking about what they are to do. We do find them later going in other places. But at least here, I believe it's significant, even in the light of what this passage is teaching, that the apostles are not the ones scattered. It's everybody else, and what is happening is significant as everybody else is acting in the midst of this. But let's look at verse 2. Stephen has died. Some suggest, and I think it's appropriate, that the very same day he was buried he was not to be left, his body was not to be left unclean as it would have been for the Jews to have a body even of someone executed on the land. They were to take care of that. So verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Now, I'm going to take this in a way that you might have to stick with me to understand why I'm saying it this way, but I'm going to take this as a public protest against Stephen's persecution or Stephen's martyrdom. And understand, based upon what we know of Stephen at this point, he was well-respected in the church, known for his wisdom, miraculous deeds. There certainly was a body of people who knew Stephen, who loved Stephen, who had even elected Stephen to office to serve the church. So we would expect among those people that this group of people might come out, some devout men who would go and bury him. Timing-wise, if you look at verse 1 and also verse 3, I don't believe this all happened this one day where it's suddenly everybody leaves on this one day, it says in verse 1 that this persecution began, and then in verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house. So it took some time for this to develop, and likely there are still Christians, certainly there would be that same day, in Jerusalem described as devout men who would have buried Stephen. But think about what it would mean to be associated with someone who was just executed by the Sanhedrin. Stephen had been charged with blasphemy against God, against the law, against Moses, against the temple. He's been executed by the highest authorities in the land, and for even someone to associate with him would have been a dangerous thing to do. An alleged lawbreaker 
who's now been executed, to even come near and say, may I have his body or take his body, no doubt the authorities in view of who Stephen was and what he was would have been looking with suspicion upon any of his associates. And it is interesting, Luke uses this word in verse 2, devout men. If we study that word devout, this means God-fearing. We read through the Gospels and also the book of Acts, and that word is used of several in several different contexts. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all of these places, but the man who came to Paul after he was converted was called a God-fearing man, a person who already believed in Jesus. The Jews who were there on the day of Pentecost prior to being saved, prior to believing in Jesus as the Messiah, were called God-fearing. And then Simeon is also called God-fearing. This man who came to the temple and got to hold baby Jesus in his arms and say, my eyes have seen your salvation. He was a God-fearing man. So you actually have a combination in Scripture of this term being used of those who are either believers or those who have yet to believe, you could say, based on the people who are called this at Pentecost. Look at the verse again. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. There's something else that you could consider with regard to the church in Jerusalem, that there were those who, remember, they looked on at the Christians, they looked on at the followers of Jesus, and they held them in high regard, but chapter 5, believe it is, said they did not associate with them. There was a fear of once they made the association, they would be considered followers, and they weren't ready yet publicly to make that move. And you remember Joseph of Arimathea in the Gospels? How he went and asked for the body of Jesus? It says that he actually took courage to do that, that he was a secret disciple out of fear, but now is his moment of revelation as he comes and asks for the body of Jesus, and he is now publicly being identified with Jesus, willing to associate with Jesus. There are those who actually look at this verse and suggest that these men are taking that step right here in following Jesus by being willing to, to associate with Stephen in his death and in his martyrdom. Based on Luke's description and the way even Luke uses the word, these just could be those among this body, the church, who loved Stephen, who were devoted to God, who came and out of their love for Stephen, buried him. And certainly there would have been love for Stephen in the church. But at this critical moment, this is a very public thing, and this is now publicly associating with him. Even if they're Christians, this is a bold thing to do. God is still answering that prayer for boldness back in chapter 4. It took boldness to bury him, and it took boldness certainly to make, as it says, loud lamentation over him. This might have been perpetrated or, or done by the leaders in a very quick and speedy way, but they weren't going to let this burial be a secret. It's not just going to be hiding him in a way in a tomb somewhere. These men actually made 
loud lamentation over him. And so this is really a way to make Stephen's death a very public thing, and certainly a stoning would be, but the loud lamentation would have drawn more attention to it. I understand that the Talmud forbid even mourning someone who had been executed in this way. So for them to do what they're doing is a very bold thing. It would have been very courageous. And what are they associating with? They're associating with someone who believed in Jesus. It was not a popular thing right now from the authority standpoint to do that. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of Hebrews here is calling this group of people to endure, to continue confessing Christ. Look at verse 32. It says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. And it's particularly that latter statement that indicates this group of people were willing to suffer shame with others who were being persecuted. They became sharers with those who were so treated. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. What am I saying? I'm saying that associating with this shameful person, at least in the eyes of the authority, was a bold statement. It was certainly a protest of his innocence, of the wrong actions of the Sanhedrin to do what they were doing. And I hope that as believers that we would be willing to suffer shame for the Lord's name and also associate with others who suffer shame for the Lord's name. To be associated with Jesus after he was crucified, to be associated with Stephen after he was executed, to be associated with people who are arrested and thrown in prison for the name of Christ, it's really an act of faith. Faith that we are really doing what God has said. And even in light of Jesus' teaching, of course, we were taught to expect the suffering, to expect that we would be treated like he would be. Turn over to chapter 12 in Hebrews. There are certainly some things in the end of chapter 11 we could consider, but as we think about our Lord himself, notice verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, thinking little of the shame. Why? Because the shame was cast upon him by sinners who did not believe the truth. But nevertheless, in the eyes of the world, it was shame. Shameful to die on a cross. 
Roman citizens were considered not worthy or above being crucified. It was the low life that were crucified. So to associate with Jesus was to associate with the cross, to associate with that shame. But he despised that shame in view of what was in front of him. I'm saying, if you go back to Acts chapter 8, that these individuals who buried Stephen certainly would have had a sorrow for his death, may have had a love for him personally, but they were willing to associate with someone who is treated shamefully, knowing who is casting the shame. Who is casting that shame? It was a sinful and wicked world that, of course, did not believe in Christ. Yesterday, there was a game in Montreal. I think it was the opening night for the Canadians, and they were playing the Blackhawks. I happen to like watching hockey. I uh, was able to connect a little bit with my dad over our trip and watch their opening game. But apparently in Montreal, there's been uh, a treatment of certain individuals with booze. They cast shame upon whoever they don't want to do well. They want to distract him. So the number one draft pick that the Chicago Blackhawks picked is now playing on their ice. This is opening night for them. Every time he gets the puck, I don't know if it was ever, I didn't watch the game, but I came to understand they were booing him the whole night. Shameful, right? Every time you get the puck, he's the number one draft pick. Guess who else they boo? The article talked about how, that I read, talked about how they don't boo nobodies. They boo the all-stars. Now, you might be treated in this life with shame and persecution and verbal threats and hatred. I'm taking this on a whole different level than just a sports game. But we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of heaven, who's going to come and in flaming fire pour out judgment upon his enemies. Who will be ashamed when he comes? It won't be us. It won't be God's people. It won't be those that he comes to rescue. It will be those who defied him. It will be those who disobeyed him. It will be those who did not believe upon him. That's where the shame is going to be cast. As we go through this life in a wicked world, the shame is cast upon those who follow Christ. But in the end, we understand and know we have no reason for shame. We have no reason to be sad or sorrowful that we're believing in Christ or following Christ, though the world might shame us now. There's a day when there's going to be a crown on our heads, which we will then cast at his feet. And we will live in glory. So live by faith. Trust in Christ. Keep on following him. Whatever shame you might experience from this world, don't stop serving the Lord. Let's look at verse 3. 
consider the primary leader here now, the persecution that's taking place. It says, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Saul, of course, is the one, the young man, as he's called in chapter 7, who is standing there as Stephen is being executed. He's also in hearty agreement, full agreement with putting him to death. And it's the same young man who has been given authority. We find him later on getting authority. Turn to chapter 9 and look at verse 1 and 2. I think this is a picture of what he's got there at Jerusalem. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what he was doing there in Damascus, he's doing here in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, again, it says, But Saul is ravaging the church. The word ravage is a word that means to destroy or to ruin utterly. In Psalm 79, uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's descriptive of a boar, pig, that comes in and just destroys a vineyard, just completely destroys all the plants, eats everything in sight, roots up the roots and makes havoc of, which is another translation of the word here. But Saul began, and notice it is, began ravaging. The word began is in italics because it's trying to reflect the word here, that this is a continuing thing. You can see it from the language that he's going into house after house and literally dragging people off to put them in prison. This is a as one person called it, a frenzied, uncontrolled pursuit of those who believed in Christ to put them in prison. The same author pointed out that Saul is mentioned in verse 3 alone. It says, but Saul began ravaging the church. So it's not as if he's He's got others with him, and Luke doesn't present it that way. It's he is leading the charge. He's going into these houses. He's taking, and he's not being merciful even to the women. Notice it says dragging off men and women, women who may have had children. He's not just taking the men who are responsible, but showing no mercy and putting them in prison for believing in Jesus, following Jesus, believing in the Messiah. Oh, yeah, look at the circumstances here, and although it's just a brief verse, imagine what is happening in Jerusalem. Imagine what is happening in the community of the disciples as house after house. In another place, it's synagogue after synagogue. He's just going in and taking anybody who claims to believe in Jesus, and he's taking them to jail. The jails are filling up. People are afraid. One writer said, the part which he, Paul, played at this time in the horrid work of persecution, I, I fear, has always been underrated. It's only when we collect the separate passages, they're no less than eight in number, in which allusion is made to this sad period. It's only when we weigh the terrible significance of the expressions used that we feel the load of remorse which must have laid upon him. That's later on. He talks about compelling people to blaspheme. 
He talks about when they were uh, being put to death, that he gave his voice against them. And so Saul here is the enemy of Christ. He's opposing Christ. He's opposing God's people. He's ravaging, destroying the church. Everything that's been built up, he's seeking to take down. He's trying to eliminate the name of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask the question, what would this kind of person do? Uh, persecution do for the church? Well, we see what it does here, but what would this kind of persecution do? Would it not distinguish between those who truly believed in Christ and those who were just fair weather friends? Somebody put it this way, Christ's summer friends. Those who are only coming and being a part of things when things are going well. What about things when things aren't going well? John Flavel, as he writes about persecution and affliction coming to the church, he said, these sufferings and trials of the church are ordained to free it of abundance of hypocrites. Affliction is a furnace to separate the dross from the more pure and noble gold. Multitudes of hypocrites, like flies in a hot summer, are generated by the church's prosperity, but this winter weather kills them. Many gaudy professors grow within the enclosure of the church like beautiful flowers in the field where they stand during its peace and prosperity in the pride and bravery of their gifts and professions, but the wind passes over them and they are gone and their places shall know them no more. Yeah, I do believe persecution in church history has been used to clarify who truly is a believer. But this is genuinely a work of God that's taking place at Jerusalem. We know, based on what we've read in the previous chapters, God was at work. These are true believers. And so when persecution comes, what happens? Well, we find out what happens in verse 4. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They went out preaching the gospel as a result of this persecution. Now, I think we might, at first glance, say, they should have stayed. Sometimes we look at believers in the midst of persecution and we make that judgment that they should have stayed where they were. I don't believe the Bible teaches you have to stay where the persecution is. In fact, if you read through even Jesus' teaching, he said that when you're mistreated, you can move on to the next city, shake the dust off your feet and keep on going. I don't believe it's a sin for these disciples to relocate and go somewhere else. It may just be that the Lord had a purpose. And in this case, I believe he does. It's actually the spread of the gospel. And we've even, among our missionaries, have one missionary family who earlier in their career had to leave one location because of persecution. And their whole life and circumstance changed, and they're doing what they're doing now because of that. The Lord had a different purpose for them. And so when Saul is doing what he's doing and people are being thrown in prison, whatever happened to them, we're not told here, but those who are experiencing this take off and they're scattered. And there's just no telling what God could do or is going to do when he scatters his people, even in a time of persecution. 
Again, this was a genuine work of God that had been taking place at Jerusalem, and now those same believers who had seen the miracles, who had followed the apostles' teaching, who were there with the church and praying and even seen Stephen martyred, are now spread out. And as they're spread out, they can't help but do what they ought to do. They couldn't help but do what they really were, and that is disciples of Christ. They couldn't help but tell others about Christ. And so what we're seeing in the last verse here, verse 4, in terms of this section, is the providential spread of the gospel. God is actually using this, this man, this enemy of his, <laughs> unwittingly to spread the gospel. You could say, in a sense, that even though Saul is not yet converted, his actions are contributing to the spread of the gospel. And praise the Lord, eventually the Lord brought him to himself so that he could spread the work or spread the gospel in a positive way. But these people are scattered. That's the second time this word has been used. Verse 1 uses that word scattered. Verse 4 uses the word scattered. The idea of separating out and away. But there's something else that scatters. And it's actually related to this word. It's the scattering of seed. It's the scattering of seed. In the Old Testament, the word, similar word, is used to, for, to refer to planting. The scattering was also a planting. What is God doing as he takes these individuals who have an understanding of the gospel that leads to everlasting life? He's scattering that seed throughout Judea and Samaria so that those seeds can then preach the gospel, and others can be saved. And did you notice what it says in verse 4? It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And who was scattered? Verse 1, they were all scattered except the apostles. So it's not the apostles it's the rest of the church, including people like Philip, who's mentioned in verse 5. Philip was one of the deacons. Philip, I think, is taken as an example. We're going to look at him later on. But my, the point that I'm making is it's not the apostles, it's everybody else. And as everybody goes, everybody's preaching. Everybody's evangelizing. This is like Spurgeon said, all at it. Nobody's not preaching. Everybody's going out and telling the good news. Everybody's going out and preaching the gospel. Spurgeon said, you thought it would have read, then the apostles went everywhere preaching the word. They were just the people who did not go at all. For the twelve remained at headquarters as yet, but the rest went everywhere preaching the word. Generals may have to stand still in the center of the battle to direct the forces, but in this battle... All the common soldiers marched to the fight. This was to be the soldier's battle, and of that sort, all the battles of the cross must be. He goes on to say in that same sermon, which I would commend, this is the true and only policy of Christianity. All Christians, soldiers of the cross, and all on active service Every converted man is to teach what he knows. All those who have drunk of the living water are to become fountains 
out of which shall flow rivers of living water. We shall never get back to the grand old times of conquest until we get back to the old method of all at it in proportion as we come in any one church to individual service. Nobody dreaming of doing his work by deputy, but each one serving God for himself. I think that's an interesting statement. No one dreaming of doing his work by deputy. Who does the work of preaching the gospel in False Berean Bible Church? Who does that? It is everyone. In terms of our responsibility, I'm asking, who does that work? Who does it? The question I'm trying to raise is, have you deputized it? Have you given that job to another? Is that something you've delegated? Is that something you're relying on someone else to do? Who's going to reach this city? Who's going to reach your coworkers? Who's going to reach your neighbors? Who's going to reach people for Christ? But you and me. I cannot delegate this to someone else. Let's see how far this went. Turn over to chapter 11. Let's just see how far this went. This is encouraging. Judea, Samaria, that's the regions to which these disciples were scattered. But look at verse 19, same writer, using some of the same language. It says in verse 19, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia. That's the coast. That's, that's going north and along the coast. And then Cyprus, that's an island out in the Mediterranean, and to Antioch. Other cities, other places, the, the gospel is spreading. Look at verse the rest of the verse, speaking to the word to no one except Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So what's going on is God is scattering his people, and they can't help to do what they're rejoicing in and love to do, and that is tell people about Christ. Why would you deputize, why would you give that job to someone else if you truly do know Christ? But that raises a question, doesn't it? Obviously, we can be disobedient and not share the gospel. We can be fearful. We can be timid. We can be ashamed. But based upon what the Scripture is teaching here in Acts chapter 8, this is what believers do. I think if you look through the Gospels and saw the disciples, this is what believers do. Now, we could go to the Great Commission passages, and we could think about our duty. But I want to encourage you to think about the reality in your life. What's the reality? You claim to know Christ? Do you know Christ? 
Do you talk about Christ? Do you tell others about Christ? I said kind of tongue-in-cheek that after our summer evangelistic efforts, I said to Brother Chris Seawright, yeah, but we, we, after summer's over, we stop evangelizing. He laughed at that. I'm glad he laughed at that. Because believers don't stop just because there are organized activities for the purpose of evangelizing. Believers evangelize. This is who we are. We have good news. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. We have the news of forgiveness of sins through his name. We have everlasting life to tell people about. Why would we, why would we deputize that to someone else? I can't imagine. This is good news. Do you believe it's good news? Do you have everlasting life? Do you know Jesus Christ? This is the good news of God about his son, Jesus Christ, who came to this world to lay down his life as an offering for sinners so that anyone who believes in him, turns from their sin and trusts in him alone will have eternal salvation, forgiveness of all their sins. They'll be justified and declared righteous. They'll be given the gift of righteousness and they'll be given the gift of the Holy Spirit who will come in forever. Why would I ever want to give that news to someone else? You know what it's like when you have, everybody's got the good news and somebody just wants to tell it first. And, and you know, everybody's got it, but it's kind of like a decision. Who, who gets to tell it first? Why isn't it that way with us? I think it does have to do with whether or not we're believing in it, whether we're delighting in it. And I just want to encourage us today that this, if we are believers, this is what believers do. They tell others about Jesus. They tell others about the way of salvation. It's actually such a joy, isn't it? After you get to do that, even if the person doesn't believe, even if the person isn't convinced by your presentation of the gospel, that's, of course, the Lord's work, the Holy Spirit's work, but it's such a blessing to tell others about Christ. May the Lord give us grace to certainly love him and obey him, but to live out this privilege that we have to be ambassadors for the name of Jesus Christ, to carry this great treasure and to be able to just give it away to people. That, that's what we're doing. Someone shared that this summer, talking about something to overcome fear. And the thought was, just remember, we're giving away a treasure. And it is. It's an everlasting one. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a blessing it is to know the good news. What a blessing it is to share it with others. And even if today in our own hearts we've been convicted of our failure or our sin, we pray that we might repent of it, but then again, join in and obey you but also recognize this great privilege of telling others the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that through this persecution, you accomplished your plan. 
We thank you, Lord, that even should persecution come, we do not need to fear death because we know that we're ultimately secure in you. Should we leave this life, we'll be with you. One day you'll raise us up again. We have that confidence, Lord, and we do not need to fear. And we should even expect it. And so we pray that if it should ever come, if it should ever come to our church or this place or our lives, we pray that we might endure with your help and grace. And that even in that, we would give testimony to who you are and to the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.